Peace to you all, my friends. We're going to continue in our series, The Holy Rupture. And um, today we're, we're really going to focus on our relationship with the Bible. And um, I want you to consider how, um, I don't know, your journey, your history with the Bible. Where did you come from? How did you relate to it? And have you experienced any ruptures in your relationship with the Bible? So that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Again, just to bring us into today's particulars, uh, we've looked at how the progression in John's gospel moves from servant to friend to shared union, how that develops. We're not under, we're not over, but there's an authority with divine life that um, the gospel of John really shows us like um, the goal Jesus wants us to experience. And we're authorized to go create, share, experience, and expand love into the world. Uh, so Trent shared kind of uh, in John chapter 20, that commission in John is he came to them and breathed on them the Holy Spirit and, and said, what I am giving you, now you go and give. Um, give that shared, unitive experience. Um, and if you're going to obey me, obey the command to love. And um, if your obedience is marked by anything, it's marked by how it produces love into the world. So the, this is kind of where we've gone in experiencing ruptures with obedience, ruptures with authority, and ruptures in this kind of understanding of exile. And um, today we want to look at the, at the Bible. And I don't know, there's there's a common binary that um, I kind of witness. And there, there's kind of like this either or with the Bible. The Bible tells me what to do and I do it. I am under the Bible's authority. Or the Bible is a museum of antiquated ideas from which to graduate. Like, I'm over its authority. Get over it. Um, so if you grew up with, was, was there one or the other that, that kind of marked the, maybe your experience or your religious upbringing um, or, or currently, you know, you're under the Bible's authority, the Bible tells you what to do, the Bible tells me so, um, or really the Bible's pretty irrelevant and gets in the way um, and is, you know, maybe part of the problem. Um, so... Again, I invite you to consider your relationship with the Bible. Have you experienced any ruptures? And um, have any of those ruptures been holy ones? Uh, this, this morning, uh, I saw this, this tweet from Brian Zond, and uh, I thought it was relevant for this morning. Uh, Bible believing is just a password. It's an empty signifier. All you have to do is utter the phrase and you're in the club. No grappling with the text, no deep reflection on what scripture reveals, just say it. It can even be used as a substitute for actually following Jesus. I thought this was kind of a, a poignant uh, uh, rebuke, right? 
Um, I would say for me, there was a deep connection with what I was taught to believe about the Bible and how it functioned and group identity. So uh, maybe, maybe your experience, if your relationship with the Bible has changed, did it also jeopardize your relationship with other people? Did it um, change your relationship to the group? Um, so I, I think the Bible can very much be used as a group signifier, almost in the way that um, circumcision operated. It was a signifier for the group identity. Um, don't mess with that because then you're messing with group identity. And that's one of the case studies that we're going to do this morning. And uh, before we, it's going to be in Acts chapter 15, but before we get there, I want to share one of my favorite quotes from Richard Rohr. And um, this move from external to internal authority, I, I think it describes one of my holy ruptures with, with the Bible. Rohr says this, most of organized religion has actually discouraged us from cultivating personal experience of God by telling us almost exclusively to trust outer authority, be that scripture, tradition, or various kinds of experts. Instead of telling us the value and importance of inner experience itself. In fact, most of us were strongly warned against ever trusting ourselves. Roman Catholics were told to trust the church hierarchy, hierarchy first and last, while Protestants were often warned that inner experience was dangerous, unscriptural, or even unnecessary. Some leaders actually call any non-noisy prayer diabolical. Um, uh, so if you're familiar with controversies about contemplative prayer, that would be non-noisy prayer, and that's dangerous. Um, that's what Richard is referring to. This, um, any appeal to inner authority is warned against. It's only the external. Um, external authorities can be trusted, not internal authority of experience. The most common temptation for all of us is to use belonging to the right group and practicing its proper rituals as a substitute for any personal or life-changing encounter with God. Uh, that's just so powerful to me. I appreciate how Richard kind of names even, it's not about Catholic or Protestant or like Christian even though. Do we use belonging to the right group and practicing its proper rituals as a substitute for life-changing encounter with God? Um, shared union. Um, this just really resonates true for me. And... Um, the Bible, this is how I would describe maybe my first holy rupture with the Bible. The Bible is not a surrogate for living experience with the triune God. And, and for me, it, it kind of operated as a surrogate or almost a Bible worship was a surrogate for um, really 
mystical transformative experience with the triune God. Uh, so what about you? What, uh, what, what have this so far um, resonates with you or uh, comes into your experience as you think about your relationship with the Bible? And how is the Bible used to kind of um, solidify a kind of group or tribal identity? Do you have any thoughts on that? You can, you can share them in the chat. Um, the the other the other rupture that was pretty significant for me is more cultural. So this first one, as the Bible as a surrogate for living experience with God, um, that was that was kind of a, a religious rupture. This this next one is a is a bit more more cultural, and this I I've shared this before in our. Um, Reformation 5.0 series, which is several years old, but that kind of there's been an evolution in human cultures around authority and governance. Um, so there is a shift uh, in the Enlightenment. So if we go back, you know, say 400-ish years, um, the 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 idea of kind of the divine monarch that had authority of God to kind of uh, govern you on your behalf started, you know, getting challenged and broken down. And so there is this shift from king to constitution. You know, this hadn't been done before. So this was, this was, this is new um, to say we're going to be governed by a shared document not by the lineage of uh, lineage of kings. And, you know, we see this also in the Protestant Reformation. So, you know, Martin Luther challenges Pope Leo's authority, the, the papal authority um, and the abuses of that authority. So the 95 Theses, and then this appeal to scriptural authority, so sola scriptura, right? So there's a movement from pope to paper or from king to constitution. And we've talked about how that shift affected the lens in which um, religiously we approach the Bible and um, can view the Bible as a constitution and um, like it's there to govern us. The govern, uh, governing, the paper governing authority. So I'll summarize that this way. The Enlightenment framed the Bible as an infallible constitution entrusted with ultimate authority to govern all life and practice. We don't need a pope. We just need the Bible. And even that word infallible is, is like 200 years old, not, not even. And that was really, there was the infallibility of the Pope that started being used. And then Protestants like, no, we don't have an infallible Pope, but we have an infallible Bible. These are all words that the Bible doesn't even use to describe itself um, and how it functions. So this is like a, a cultural lens that we're constraining the Bible to. Um, all right, I'll, I'll pause here for a, a moment. Uh, Andy and Wendy shared that sometimes the college you attended can be a Bible password. Oh, yes. Oh, that's, 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 that's fascinating. Uh, 
Yeah, I knew when I moved out here, I learned like Bethel and Northwestern. Like, um, if you were really serious about the Bible, you'd go to Northwestern. But if you wanted to be a liberal Christian, you went to Bethel. <laughs> they didn't have mandatory chapel, so they were Lucy. Uh, Kay says, I remember a time when I would note people going into a church, whether they were carrying Bibles or not. I would judge on that. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for sharing that story, Kay. We have all kinds of um, like group external behaviors that can signify whether you're in or not. Uh, Lee says, contemplative prayer always seemed to go hand in hand with the Holy Spirit that dwells and lives in me. As for the Bible, I lose some trust amidst the translations that have occurred and am tentative to rely on potential inserted perspectives in the translation. Thanks for sharing, Lee. Uh, uh, one of you who you all know, but I don't, uh, says, as humans, we seem to desire an outer authority. Give us a king. Um, oh, that's Tony. I pulled it up on my phone. So thanks, Tony. Good, good use there. Um, and if we go back to that, that first teaching on obedience and that rupture is kind of in the first half of life, there can be a comforting um, like an important comfort that comes with being under authority. And I would say like the need to have mature authorities that are wise is a huge, huge need. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Greg says, growing up in one denomination of Lutheranism definitely judged another faction as one that was not biblical but I ended up aligning myself more with the one that had been judged in my formative years. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I definitely came from a denomination that um, God might accept other Christians, but it may be. We knew we were the right ones. I attended an ELCA college and definitely saw uh, the difference. Um, that was uh, Mary. Uh, yeah, interesting. And in Minnesota, especially, we're under like just kind of a kind of a framing haze of Martin Luther. Um, and uh, it's important to interrogate um, that that tradition in both its gifts and um, problems, right? Um, seminary education trained pastors like constitutional lawyers. Now this is this is changing, but it's definitely. Um, I don't know if any of you can ring true with this observation. If you interpret the Bible right, then you get right governance. So that was a big part of churches and denominations and you trained how to interpret the Bible correctly, then like the universe would fall into place and there would be peace and love in heaven. 
um, because we've got the infallible constitution, the Bible, and it just is about right interpretation. So to Lee's point on like, do you have the right translation or the, you know, all of that is still, I think, wrapped under this rubric of viewing the Bible as a constitution. And I think that whole frame needs to rupture. Get the words right and you will be right with God. Uh, we even have training with the same originalist or non-originalist philosophies. Um, so even those, those current debates about constitutional law and who's on the Supreme Court and what's their philosophy about it, um, originalist feels very similar to biblicist. Um, and uh, the Bible in its original manuscripts, which don't exist, um, is is kind of the mythology then that will give you uh, right life and practice. And we just need to commit ourselves to the original understanding of the authors and not veer from that. Um, you're not allowed to change or update or interpret um, in a different way. It's fixed. Um, and a lot of those philosophies influence the way we do uh, religion, the way we do education, and the way we approach the Bible. Leah says, graduating from seminary required a doctrinal paper of my interpretation of scripture. We then had an oral examination and I was asked to go back and rewrite part of my paper that was not considered consistent because I didn't conform to modern Arminian theology, I had to pick Calvinism or Arminianism. <laughs> you get to pick a school. You can be an originalist or a non-originalist, and not, not both. Thank you for sharing um, that. You know, even in, in my ordination, it was, I, I needed to write a doctrinal, like a, you know, a several page doctrinal statement and then I was like tested on it um, I wasn't asked like if I was a loving person or generous um, you know it was about am I uh, equipped to read the Bible correctly um, and and that's still pretty pretty common And this is uh, from last week. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And uh, I love this. Jesus is doing more than training us to cook on a hot stove. Jesus is giving us the keys to the whole kitchen. And so here's the, the rupturing of our understanding of being under authority to really this shared invitation into divine life and um, an authorization really to produce the fruit of love in the world. Um, that's what we're authorized um, to do. And um, I want us to see in Acts chapter 15, I feel like is a wonderful recorded case study in the first followers of Jesus trying to work this out in, the, in practice for, for better and, and for, for worse. But 
it's just a wonderful illustration of the Bible just didn't tell them what to do. Um, they need to they needed to make decisions, and their decisions held weight. I mean, they influenced how things happened um, in in the world and in those congregations. Our decisions hold weight. Um, whether if there are decisions to be like a biblicist, the Bible tells me what to do, and I do it. Those decisions have a kind of weight, and do does that weight produce? Um, Transformation, love, um, divine experience, wisdom, um, and discernment, or does it produce different kinds of fruit? Those are the things that I think we're um, invited into. Okay, so if you have a, if you have a, if you have your Bibles or uh, another device and you want to pull up Acts chapter fifteen, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Go ahead, take in a deep breath and pause. Uh, oh, Trent says, uh, Leah, both of which, uh, referring to Calvinism or Arminianism, don't even vaguely resemble anything like what the earliest Christians would have believed. And that, that is a good word. It, that is true. Okay, Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So we're, we're, we're brought into what is one of the, mo the major debates in the New Testament. Um, what do we do about this, really, the biblical covenant of circumcision? And what place does it have now in this growing community of followers of Jesus, which is now like they're moving beyond particular ethnic boundaries. Um, and I think this is just a huge challenge always and today, even if those particular ruptures or disputes might be other topics. Um, so one of the things that I think is important to consider is that not all disputes were solved in the New Testament, but I think that's a, a, a that can be a... Uh, maybe a, f uh, a statement believed by faith that everything we need for life and practice has already been resolved. Um, and it's just in the Bible and we just need to turn to it and do what it says and then that'll take care of our issues and problems. 
So that's, I think, a statement of faith, um, to believe that the Bible has already resolved all disputes and has a word for you on it, uh, specific and clear and inerrant. So I want to, you know, shed a word for those who are arguing for circumcision. I would say they had the Bible on their side. So you're going to make a biblical argument. Um, they had strong, strong support, strong biblical support. I would say these are... Um, the Bible-believing uh, uh, cohort uh, trying to convince those in Antioch that they need to be circumcised if they're going to be a part of this Jesus thing. And it goes back to the covenant of Abraham. So this is Genesis 17. It's very early on in the movement, right? Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. So that feels pretty ongoing. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So this is, this is the membership card. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not of your offspring. So foreigners that want to come into your house are to adopt this practice as well. So that if I was arguing for the continuation of this covenant, for ethnic outsiders, I would say, here it is. The Bible is clear. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant is in your flesh. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant, eternal, forever, not ending. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You're not in. You're out. Uh, okay, so sit, you know, sit with that. This is not an easy thing to sort out. It was not obvious. And... Um, it feels, you know, I can imagine though, like Paul or Peter arguing that we shouldn't make circumcision a requirement. I bet they were called like arrogant and people not under authority. You're off the, you're going off on your own. You're going outside the fence um, and you need to be reined back in. So I've, I've got a lot of empathy for this challenge like what how do you understand how to move forward now i want to share a scary judgment story so this is very obscure you've got two verses in the middle of the exodus narrative that are very strange 
very ancient. Um, Moses goes back to Midian. He's married to a foreign woman, Zipporah, and then are now going to return to Egypt and confront Pharaoh uh, to let his people go. And you get this little narrative. At a lodging place on the way, that's way back to Egypt, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Why was the Lord about to kill Moses? But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. This is a very obscure Hebrew phrase. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So you had this very kind of odd story, but um, it's understood as God is really serious about circumcision. And, um, and it probably served in this community of like, is Moses and his foreign wife, are they kosher, you know, really good? And it sounded like maybe she didn't want to have her Midian son born of Moses to participate in this kind of this particular ritual. Like what did it have to do with them and her understanding of the divine? Um, and they go back to Egypt and they have this divine encounter and God apparently is going to, you know, there's, it's a scary judgment story emphasizing circumcision. So um, talking about this, this particular passage is a whole other sermon, maybe. Um, but I want to, I want to share a pattern that I've observed and it's this, Bible proof text plus scary judgment story equals super duper barrier preventing discerning wise and loving action. Now, I added super duper just because it kind of made me giggle a little um, to bring some humor back into this story, lest you think God uh, really does kill people or threatens them if they don't circumcise their sons. That's in the Bible. Um, is that uh, what's really going on? Um, those are all the, the fun things to like sort through. But Bible proof text, if I were those confronting you know, Paul and Barnabas and Antioch, I'd say Genesis 17, Exodus 4, Bible proof text plus scary judgment story equals I don't care how we're experienced God in this moment, the Bible is meant to rein us back in and prevent this new movement in a wrong direction. So using the Bible as a proof text and then having these scary judgment stories can actually be a pretty profound barrier to be able to discern wise, loving action. I feel like I, I don't have a choice. I've, I'm, I'm being biblical and I've gotta be biblical because God punishes non-biblical people, maybe pretty severely. Um, I'll give uh, this example um, from my past here at this church. Right? I became, 
Well, oh, they'll, they'll, this is like, t- I'll, I'll, I'll conflate some stories here. First of all, it's May 2nd, and my wife and I were married in this church 22 years ago on this day, May 2nd. Uh, it was a Sunday, and it was like 82 degrees. It was, su- it was like yesterday. Um, so happy anniversary, Sarah. And uh, I love my history here. Okay. And I became the youth pastor here that fall in uh, October 99. And um, in the next year, we found ourselves without a, a, a senior pastor. And my title at the time was Director of Youth Ministries. And I was doing a lot of preaching at the time in between um, not having a pastor. And so the elder team wanted to change my title from uh, director to youth pastor because I was doing more pastoring. And I said, well, um, I'm not opposed to having my my title changed from youth director to youth pastor. But if I was a woman, would uh, you also change my title from youth director to youth pastor? And the answer was no. And I said, well, then I'm happy for my title to remain youth director. And one of the elders at the time, um, who is a wonderful person, it's not uh, an indictment on them, that isn't an indictment on our tradition, on how we've been taught. Um, he's like, well, we can't have a woman be a pastor because Bible proof text, 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must remain quiet. And two, a scary judgment story. And he shared with me 2 Samuel 6.7 when Uzzah was... Uh, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and the cart stumbled and he put his arms out to brace it and God was angry with him for doing that irreverent act and killed him. And he said, see, we need to obey the Bible because sometimes God just knows and wants things to be a certain way and we're to be obedient. And so whether it makes sense to me or not that God doesn't want women pastors, we need to be obedient. Uh, and I, I said, oh, well, that's in, uh, I mean, that's an interesting understanding. Would the elder team be willing? I was doing my grad work at the time at Bethel in organizational leadership, and I needed um, to do a thesis project. And, and I said, would the elder team be willing for me to make this my thesis project to come up with Um, a strategy for how our congregation can kind of navigate this tension between women in ministry and quote-unquote being biblical. And they said, yes, we would be open to that. So that became this. And here's the title. I considered myself an evangelical at the time. And that's a, a, a boundary that I transcend. Let's put it that way. 
A study of the evangelical debate on women in ministry, how local church leaders can constructively navigate the issue in their congregation. So that's, that's the history of how that happened 20 some years ago. And then um, in 2006, we changed that, that policy and understanding. But I just wanna see this like a Bible proof text plus scary judgment story tends to produce uh, non-discerning, unwise, and unloving action that feels like you're obeying the rules. It can give you the perception of a kind of godliness um, that is actually works against the liberation of the spirit in the world. Thanks for all the and happy anniversaries. Thank you. <laughs> Megan, traditions equal peer pressure from dead people. <laughs> that, that is awesome. Uh, all right. So I don't know, do you have any examples? Does this, does this little uh, equation... Um, relate to you. Uh, and I want to get behind this a bit and, you know, consider this example, you know, Genesis 17, Exodus 4, what was happening 2,000 years ago in Antioch and Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And I think underneath I can identify two pretty significant fears. So the first is an authorization fear. We don't have permission. We are going to get punished. Like, we don't have permission to change the rules on circumcision. Like, that's beyond our pay grade. Like, we haven't been authorized to make that kind of transformative change. Uh, and you have plenty of like Bible stories that have scary judgments in them. And if you think, if that's the view of God that you're carrying forward, um, it's, it's really hard to operate any different in the world. We don't have permission. We are going to get punished. I, I could see them saying, you know, if this is a big deal, this was a big change and Jesus didn't tell us about it. Like surely Jesus wouldn't have given this one over to us to figure out. He would have told us specifically, hey, you know what? Down the road a ways, Gentiles are going to want to follow me too, and you need to loosen up on the circumcision. Like, he would have said that. He wouldn't have entrusted us with that level of discernment. So there's an authorization fear. There's a lack of permission. Um, and there's a fear of punishment. The second is uh, identity fears. This particular thing is a signifier of our group identity and losing it will mean the loss of us. Um, you know, I remember as a, as a little kid, um, you know, our, our, the church I grew up with um, still doesn't allow women pastors and it's an identity of being biblical. So that's a external signifier of their 
being biblical identity. And I remember, ooh, there was some churches within our denomination out in the West and Midwest that were letting women be ushers and count money, and they were liberal. So, I mean, that, that was... That was I, now, I think, I think the church I grew up with now allows women to be ushers and count money. So, I, I, according to that, they've, they've, they've liberalized. Um, but the loss of identity is huge. And I, I think this is le- le- legit. Like, what, what sets us apart from, like, the pagan nations? It's like, this was, this was a, a big signifier of us, our commitment to be different. It wasn't like that in and of itself made us different, but it was a identity marker. Um, and if we start messing with that, like it's, it's just kind of a dilution of self, a loss of self. And I think there's a lot of fear around that. Um, so that's what I think is underneath to me, um, a lot of these debates. Leah, scary proof text equals Sodom, uh, yeah, plus Sodom and Gomorrah equals cannot allow gay marriage. Leah, I am so happy that you made that, that leak. Um, uh, because I, uh, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. We've got a Bible proof text. We've got Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, we can't, um, make a change, right? There's an authorization fear. We don't have permission to do this. We're going to get punished. And there's a loss of identity fear. Um, Churches that marry gay people aren't godly or aren't biblical. Um, And, you know, everything is going to be lost if you go down this slippery slope to Sodom, kind of. Thank you for, for sharing that. And then we reduce people to issues, which is a trigger word for me. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And should be, like even, even here. Here's the trigger, right? How do we constructively navigate the issue? <laughs> Gosh. But that's, you know, we had to go through that dehumanizing journey to get to a more human place. Um, and I would say human place as more divine place. Those are synonymous. Uh, and the text says that they were destroyed for their mistreatment, lack of love for the, the poor. Yeah, I think that's in uh, Ezekiel on Sodom and Gomorrah. So thanks, thanks, Greg. Uh, Pat says, Tony and I have been watching Schizel on Netflix, a series about Orthodox Judaism as practiced in Israel, and it's fascinating how many workarounds and sacrifices are made, especially by women, to follow the rules and traditions. Wow. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, there's pl- it's, a, it's a particular posture that can be found in really any religious tradition. Um, and you can, you can see, especially when it's not your own, how like oppressive and unloving it can be. And it's harder to see that in your own, your own tribe and your own tradition. 
Awesome. Wonderful conversation, friends. Thank you for this. I'm going to return to Acts chapter 15 and just see how they kind of navigated this. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So here is, God was up to something that we witnessed. So I think that's in an important um, reality, again, back to the importance of experiencing God. Not having these like legal surrogates for experience. But God brought this group of people in without discriminating. And we saw evidence of the Holy Spirit. Like, oh wow, we didn't think the Holy Spirit would, would hang out with this unclean group of people. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are, liberated into something. So, I mean, there's all kinds of good conversations here, including what does he mean by salvation? Um, but I, I just see this um, kind of prioritizing of experience with God over using a Bible proof text to prevent something potentially scary. The whole assembly became silent, and as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So Peter shares, then Paul and Barnabas share their experience. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So it's like God interrupted our expectations. So one question would be like, can God still interrupt our expectations? Does God still do that? Or is that done with the Bible? I think that is also like a, a faith statement. Um, God, all the changes God wanted are done, done now. So we don't have to change anymore. I, I, I think that's some of the, um, you know, a percentage of humans just don't want things to change and other people really enjoy changes. And that's always been a, a dilemma, right? The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. So now James quotes Amos. So James brings the Bible into play too, but in a very different way. 
After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Um, so I don't think anyone reading Amos would have at the time, or if you were an originalist, did Amos mean these Gentiles wouldn't have to be circumcised? They'd say, no, Amos totally would have been like, well, yeah, they'd basically become Jewish. But James uses this passage differently in service to the witness of what God is doing through experience. So prioritizing experience of God and seeing how the scriptures also give witness to what they are experiencing. Like this must be what the prophet meant. The prophet wasn't, isn't here now, but we can see there was this, the, the tent's going to expand beyond the house of David to include the nations. And that's what we're seeing. And it didn't seem like God made them have surgery before they experienced the Holy Spirit. So James uses the, the scriptures differently than kind of the circumcision group which was the Bible was being used over and against experience. No, I hear what you're saying, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, but Genesis 17, Exodus 4, uh, we've always done this. So I find that kind of this case study interesting for how we also try to navigate what is God doing in our midst. And do we allow experience to be prioritized? or at least to have a voice along with scripture, to go back to Joseph had a dream and went against tradition, to uh, still go through with a marriage to Mary. Peter had a dream, a vision, to go to a Gentile's house to eat and then experience God's intervention. James continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat-strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So this is James's recommendation or compromise, you could say, between these two factions. It's trying to make a way forward. All right, let's not make it harder on Gentiles. Um, but we're trying to have a, a, a group. Um, so let's abide by some of the, the more uh, severe irreverent practices, right? Um, so that we can have fellowship together. And, you know, st still most of these gatherings, the, the service is opera operated around a, a, a synagogue liturgy. And I, so I think this last part is like, we're afraid we're going to lose everything by just 
affirming what God is doing and not making this an additional requirement. Um, they're still hearing the law of Moses read and people can kind of decide for themselves then how to make their way forward. We're not throwing out everything. We're still reading the Torah. Yeah. So I think this is addressing some of those identity fears. And the authorization is coming from the experience of God, right? Um, who are we to go against what the Spirit is doing? So here's the letter then that gets sent. Um, and then they, they authorize verbal witnesses to carry this, right? To uh, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. So that's interesting in of itself, how authority is operating in this group. Troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Which is that, that I love that phrase. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're an abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of the strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, I'll just say uh, one more word here on this letter. Um, was this then the infallible, unchanging word on the subject? Like on those following requirements. is almost then like, it seems like in other Pauline letters, all right, well, we'll, we'll relax on circumcision, but not on meat sacrifice to idols. You know, that, that one's right here. By the council, the first church council of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. Uh, but even that, and as like the community goes forward, Paul's kind of challenges, hey, this is starting to become a barrier to transformation, love, and fellowship. Um, so we probably shouldn't judge one another. You know, I, I'd say, you know, the, the, the current things that we could judge each other. Um, like they eat meat produced in factory farms. Is that a godly thing to do? Well, it's terrible for the environment. The employees are treated awful. Yeah, probably not. But like, should that be a requirement of like the Holy Spirit can't work in you? Like, I got to confess, I still eat a lot of meat from factory farms. Um, 
But I'm starting to experience some conviction around that to change my, you know, change my eating and buying habits. But to make that like a, a determiner of group identity or who's in and out or the way we judge people, um, we've got all kinds of ways that we can judge um, and miss one another. So I, I think back to Kay's at the beginning of this, this message, you know, is that a church where people bring their Bibles, their own Bibles? <laughs> you know, all of the, the, the things that we can, we can do here. So I, what I love about this case is I believe this is an example of having the keys of the kingdom, the keys to the kitchen, and learning how to try to make a meal um, and bring in two groups together and trying to work it out and discern what God is doing in our midst and then what is going to produce wisdom, discernment, and love and what's going to be a barrier to love, wisdom, and, and discernment. I'll pause. Pause there. I have a prayer I want to share from Jan Richardson in close. And I want you to consider your relationship with the Bible in your life, the history with it. Um, what ruptures have you experienced? Um, and for, for me, if I could say the two big ones were the Bible is not a surrogate for God. Bible's not God. That was a big rupture. Um, and the Bible's not a constitution. It's a sacred library. That was another big rupture. Um, where they became holy was I really thought um, those ruptures were going to end with like the Bible is worthless, the Bible's not good anymore. Or it's just a museum of antiquated ideas from which to graduate. But that's not what happened. You know, I, for me, I experienced like a, a resurrection with the, the scriptures. And I, you know, I, and I would say like some of that's witnessed like in the last several weeks. I mean, most of these ruptures we've used, I've used the scriptures to kind of give witness to these experiences, kind of how James did with using Amos to give witness to what God is presently doing. Um, and I find the scriptures are really powerful for that. Like in, when used in that way, there's like this liberative um, uh, kind of gathering of the saints before us that says, see, God is still living and active and you're encountering Christ even through these ancient words. Um, so that's, that's been, been my experience. It didn't become less. It became more and um, in, a, in a more freeing way. And I don't need it to confirm an identity. It's like my identity has been confirmed way before the Bible. I belong. 
And my belonging cannot be jeopardized by my views or understanding of the Bible, past, present, or future. I'm going to share this prayer in closing. God of the generations, when we set our hands to labor, thinking we work alone, remind us that we carry on our lips the words of prophets, in our veins the blood of martyrs, in our eyes the mystics' visions, in our hands the strength of thousands. In this new season, may we know the presence of the God who dwells within our days, the mystery of the Christ who drenches us in love, the blessing of the Spirit who bears us into life anew. Amen. Amen. Love you, friends. Go ahead and take in a deep breath. If you need elements to celebrate communion, go ahead and get those. Tony writes, it's hard for me to comprehend how big a rupture accepting the Gentiles must have been for these Jews. After all, a thousand years of following the law, what motivated them? The Holy Spirit, love, question? Yeah. Thank you, Tony. I think it is, it's difficult for us really to, I, I think, get into those shoes to comprehend how huge these ruptures were. And um, I think, to me, that motivated Mark's gospel, the tearing of the heavens at the baptism, the tearing of the heavens, the curtain of the temple, at the crucifixion, that these were like highly rupturous events. Um, and we too would experience those ruptures. Um, but it's disorienting, it's scary, um, and there's plenty of things you can use to stay put, to not kind of enter into the rupture and experience it as holy. Amen. And amen.